everybody, I'm Roxy. And I'm Priska. And we are the, the two horny We're just two horny goats climbing this mountain of life, eating Asian American stereotypes for breakfast. Welcome, everybody, to episode two of season two, where we're going to be talking about, guess what, our professional careers, because we've never talked about that. Oh, shit. Is this like an interview? Am I supposed to be wearing, like, wearing a blouse? You know like, what's really crazy, Priscilla, yeah. is that like everybody knows you in our community as this like amazing, transcendent, illuminating <laughs> singer songwriter, <laughs> and they're just like so like mind blown. <laughs> like, not to say that people like didn't know how incredibly like talented you are in terms of your words and and all that, but this podcast yeah. has unveiled themselves another part of you, which is when yeah. we first started out, people were commenting and people were sending you messages. Remember all of that? Like it was yeah. so groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was crazy, and uh, and also you know you know me so well. Like you've had to wait for me to take a shit. Like we've shared a bathroom. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, I'm a singer songwriter, but I also have a background in marketing. So, and you know, you have so many different facets and little, I've seen you go through so many iterations of your career. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy that we've ended up where we are, you know? I think so too. Cause people know you as a director, but you've like been a PA you've, you've, you've come up the ranks. Like you've been at every rung on Mm -hmm. the ladder. Every mm-hmm. rung, and you've spent mm-hmm. a long time at the bottom. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, oh, yeah, I've been bottoming for so fucking long. I'm just ready to be a top. You yes, know, uh, yes, get that power dynamic shifted. But I don't want to do that much work as a top. No, it's too much work. Yeah, it's, I don't want to sweat. You know what I mean? I don't want to get any sweat and ruin my foundation. No, but then honestly, when I'm at the top, sometimes I'm wondering, like, can I just be bottoming again with like a ballerina? Turn out your legs and just smile. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do the thing bitch like i I know what you mean sometimes it's like easier to just take marching orders than to have to give marching orders a hundred percent a hundred percent and you know i think the reason why we um are shifting to this topic again is because a lot of you know me and priscilla personally and have asked us why we haven't talked about you know our 3d quote-unquote careers and why we haven't broached this topic yet why why do you think this isn't like this wasn't like one of the first things we talked about Prisca? why do you think that i think that's a really good question i think that we've taken a very like winding path to where we are now and i Mm -hmm. think i think for sure for me like there is a division between like I think people that know me as Prisca versus people that know me as Priscilla, which my sister will like laugh out loud, like LOL at me about. But like um, people that know me as Prisca are people in the entertainment world, um, mm-hmm. in the music industry. Like I, I started going by Prisca, I think, in like 2012, maybe 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and but in my professional life, you know, I'm Priscilla Liang. I'm, a, you know, marketing specialist. I do. I've done social media, content marketing, copywriting, co- you know, um, content management for like eight, nine years now. Um, And you saw me when I went to go get my first interview. And Mm -hmm. the second I got that job, I moved in with you like that week, you know, (laughs) it's it's a huge part of my life. But I do think that when it comes to talking about the Prisca side of my life, the more entertainment side of my of my life, I don't really bring up the other stuff because it doesn't really seem that pertinent. But I, I think when you brought up this topic of going through our careers, I was like, you know what, like, this is important to talk about because, um, this is something, not only did I struggle with, um, deciding whether or not to, you know, 
have a nine to five and uh, versus doing art for a very long time. But I'm proud of certain professional accomplishments. You know what I mean? And, um, and I know like with this podcast and, and I know we've talked about it, but part of what's great about getting older is you've amassed all of these skills and I've amassed a certain set of skills and, and, and doing this podcast in a way was really smooth because of the experience we've had before. Right. I'm so excited to like start asking you questions about (laughs) these two identities that you have, Yeah, you know, because it's like, at what point do they converge, Mm -hmm. you know, or at what point do you have these hard boundaries? You know what I mean? Because there's a pleasure and there's also a privacy and sort of, um, in terms of like having those hard boundaries up, like not letting one world collide with the other. Yeah. But then sometimes you're just wondering, like, but what if I am just me? You know what I mean? I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to identity. Entertainment, people see us at the forefront on a platform. And sometimes we're just wondering, like, they see one side of us. And this podcast is a way for people to truly get to know us. Sometimes I feel like that's the root of it as well. And I don't know if you feel this way, but... I've performed at a couple events that were great for like either young Democrats or, or um, a, like a lawyer's association or a doctor's association or or just like a Taiwanese business professional association. Um, and those are the rooms in which I feel the most uncomfortable, not mm. because like I don't love the people, not because people aren't lovely, but because we didn't take that path and like our priorities tend to be kind of different you know I, I, I have you found yourself in those spaces I always think you look very confident but I'm wondering if there's like a storm going on inside uh yeah my storm is <laughs> haha I look what I fucking did bitches <laughs> look at where I am now by taking the unbeaten path where all of you were telling me yeah that it was not worth it from Ooh. the beginning. So I have a very different approach to those things. Like mm-hmm. I get invited to speak and yes, I will speak because I'm just like to all of you naysayers, you know, who yeah. ask you to suppress your calling to suppress who you really are. Yeah. I'm here to be an example that yes, it's not easy, you know, like mm-hmm. that I'm not going to lie about it, but that you can still do it with the right support mm. and the right approach, you know? So wow. I think you know, talking to my parents who I love, you know, they are immigrants and, um, I'm an immigrant and, you know, my mom has always said to me when things are going all right, to be stable is the most important thing. And recently I've been really having this memory of her cutting coupons in our home in New Jersey. And that's literally what she would do every single night after dinner is like go through the coupon book and then use coupons at the grocery store. And, you know, they're very well off now, you know, they, they're financially stable, but that just really reminded me like where they came from, what their mentality was, how Mm. important it was to save money and like what they don't want for me. Right. They don't want me to go through that. So at the same time, it's like, you going through your life, you have to ask what's best for you and how you yeah. could best nurture the gifts and your purpose, right? It's so true. And so, Goatees, today, our topic, um, our topics are going to be topic one, Prisca, topic two, Roxy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit of a different structure, but we're going to go through um, basically origins of Prisca. <laughs> I love yes. talking about myself in the third person. <laughs> it's the best. Um, it's number one. And then we're going to go through um, origins of Roxy. And, and so we're g- kind of going to interview each other and 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 kind of swap off and so um you know you can kind of get a really good view of like our individual journeys and then obviously you've seen how our our journeys converge you know what i mean but i think 
getting to I'm going to get to know a lot about Roxy today. And that's what I'm excited about. Yeah. And then we're going to do this in the approach of two horny goats. So things are definitely probably going to take a spin in terms of meaning (laughs) and peeling things back and like looking things under a microscope because it's not just about us doing the work or like how our certain paths have led us to this certain place, but also it's like sort of discovering you know, yeah. the nuances and also what everything sort of means in terms of our journey. So I'm, yeah. I'm excited to dive into Prisca in oh more ways God. than I'm one. I'm so scared. <laughs> I'm well, scared about most... you like pinning me down and like answer the question. And I'm like, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> this, this pandemic and lockdown has made me us uh, so crazy in yeah. terms of like, um, you know, digging, I'm just like horny down all to the, the time. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, I'm that horny too. all the time. For sure. But, okay. So, Priska, you and I first met in film studies class at UCI. And uh, why film studies? Like, (laughs) did you also want to go into filmmaking? Like, but I don't really get that sense from you at all nowadays. So where did that come from? It it sounds really cheesy, but for me, um, after seeing Lord of the Rings, and you know I'm like a huge Lord of the Rings fan, um, it it, it completely (laughs) shaped my worldview. I mean, it completely broke something open in me of Uh like the possibilities of taking a story and creating an entire world from it uh, an entire fully realized world that other people can inhabit the reason mm-hmm. why comic-con even exists is because there are so many franchises that allow people to crawl inside and inhabit mm-hmm. these spaces and that was really appealing to me um, and i realized I, I think filmmaking was something that at the time at least it was a medium that really made sense to me there are times that i do wish that i had pursued academia longer when i was younger Mm -hmm. um but i didn't you know but in terms of coming to understand people coming to understand humanity and being able to alter and manipulate reality through the medium of film was so beautiful to me and i continue to have such a deep respect for it and you know i made a couple of short films and loved the process but i think i very quickly became burnt out by the industry aspect of it i i realized like it was taking away all of my personal enjoyment of film. Mm-hmm. It was taking away all the things that I realized, like at the end of all things, like for me, I would lose all of my love for this medium. And that just wasn't a path that I decided I wanted to pursue. And sometimes I, I'm sad about it and wonder about it. Can you tell me a little bit about those specific moments where you dipped your toe in and then took it back? So when we um, moved out to LA, I, would like PA on some of your projects and some of Sheldon's projects, you know, which was so fun. Actually, I love, I love PA life. You know, I know it's like grueling. And, <laughs> no, you and, don't. I mean, yeah, as like a 22 year old, but like staying up all night, moving things, carrying things, running back and forth between the talent. That was like, that was the most fun you could ever have, you know, like as a 22 year old, you know, also Obviously PA now. means um, production assistant for those of you who don't know what that is. And so it's literally like <laughs> bitch work. the person doing the brunt work yeah. of everything. It's lowest level. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, I've always been a PA with um, very experienced PA. So they always handled the like real shit. And all I had mm-hmm. to do was like follow directions, which I'm like, uh, I love, I love people giving me direction. <laughs> um, but, and, and so on top of that, I worked at a, um, an Asian uh, TV network. Uh, mm. It was very small, but it was like cable. Um, and I was like, I was on air talent to an extent and I was doing editing um, and I was like, you know, producing shows. And I remember you and Sheldon, you guys did armed with the camera. Mm-hmm. I know like looking back, that was such a small thing, I guess, but 
it empowered you guys in a big way, I remember. It was just mm-hmm. like the class you guys were in for Armed with the Camera was so everyone like ended up going on to do a lot of really cool things, you know? Mm-hmm. And actually like the year after you guys did it, like Sheldon encouraged me, you encouraged me to apply and I didn't get I I didn't get it. And I think for whatever reason, I think that discouraged me more than it ought to have, but it, it discouraged me in a way that I I silenced myself because I was like, I took that rejection really hard. Mm. I think being 23, 22, and I think I wrote a script about loss and they were like, this is kind of cliche. We've seen it before. And, and that was really tough. Even though it was like a thousand dollar grant, I forget how much. It wasn't like a ton of money, but just to, I, I saw you and Sheldon go through that mentorship, go through that kind of um, camaraderie. And mm-hmm. um, I also think like at that same time, Sheldon had gotten into film school. Alyssa had gotten into film school. Um, and Fatima, our professor, had told me, I don't think you're ready to apply for film school. She's like, I'm ready to write your recommendation like after you've lived some life. And I took that so hard as well. Like I just felt like I had failed because I do not know that she said that to you. I think I also think that because, and I don't want to, I don't want to sound cocky at all, but the film that we showed for our senior thesis, it was very well received. Um, yeah. You won the golden anteater award, which is basically the jury award. I like mean, Prisca took the freaking prize <laughs> at our was, university. I, I remember film you had to push me year. on stage. Cause I was confused. I was like, I don't understand why my name's up there. And you had to like push me on the stage <laughs> to accept it. But like, I think I was just very young and I was very um, eager, but I didn't have the strength to stand without approval from others. Mm-hmm. And obviously I'm in a very different place now, but Prisca in 2011, 2012 was I didn't understand my own worth and I would very easily let other people, um, other people's perception of me then reflect on how I viewed myself and um, it would get me unmotivated and I don't think I was like fully depressed but I would go through seasons of low-grade depression especially losing my grandmother at that time which you know was a really big thing for me because I was the one who was caring uh, like helping care for her along with my family and so losing her and then writing a script about that and then getting rejected was like it was just too much I think for me. Also Um, you're very vulnerable during that time because you you just got out of an institution you're in flux there's nothing certain you know what I mean and there's no direction either you're not mature yet yeah there's no path there's no path that's visible to you and do I have regrets I do I do because I still have that desire in me to tell stories and I know you know when we've worked on the music video together and 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 you know when we talk about things I love to tell stories you know and I know that the time has probably passed for me to pursue actual like filmmaking that's not true I mean yeah, yeah I understand that my life could have looked different, not that it would have been better or worse, but here we are, you know, like I chose the path that I did and I do have certain regrets about it at certain times. I can't lie about that. I know that you, me and Sheldon and Alyssa, we connected because the, like we were so passionate about filmmaking yes. and we had such distinct styles, even like I remember what Sheldon was doing back in, in school, and he would deny this, but he already had a clear vision. What you were making at the time, you already had a clear vision. What Alyssa was writing and making at the time, like you could just tell like there was like a, a, the stamp of... There's like a voice. A voice, yeah. Right. And I think I had my own 
type of thing there too you definitely have a voice priscilla and there was a love there was a devotion that all of us shared and met in and that's how we you know stayed up 48 hours straight working on things together and helping each other on our projects and i'll never forget that and i think the purity of that is what i love and i think the actual industry i wasn't strong enough to survive it how did that shift into this startup life and becoming a marketing professional oh Yeah. Great question. So ladies and gentlemen, when you have a film studies degree and you (laughs) bring it out into the world and you don't want to go into film anymore, there's not a ton of options. It doesn't seem like, you know, either you go and maybe like get a teaching credential because essentially a film studies degree is similar to an English degree. It's a lot of writing. It's a humanity. It's basically going into academia if you were to pursue even further. Yes. I guess this is like maybe putting too much together, but ever since I skipped fourth grade, I felt always behind in terms of me being able to express myself with the written word, um, especially within a given structure. So I think I missed the conversation on essay writing in fourth grade. I think, you know, you're writing a paragraph in third grade and you're like, you missed the sentences. missions in, in, in I that missed grade. The missions. You also missed essay yeah. format in I missed grade. essay formats. And then in fifth grade, they just assume you can do a five paragraph essay without any trouble, you know? So I think ever since fifth grade, all through high school, I struggled so hard because I couldn't wrap my head around the structure. So every time I was writing, I just felt like I was like free falling from somewhere. And I was like, hope I land safely. I don't know. And um, generally, a lot of teachers, I think they understood that I wasn't stupid. But at the same time, they were really frustrated because I was not a good test taker. And I was a terrible essay writer. Um, And so I had so many teachers who like really cared about me and and wanted me to do well. I was like a solid B plus student. You know what I mean? Nothing impressive. First film class I took was with Bliss Lim. She's this little Filipina lady who I don't know what she does in her spare time, but in my mind, she like rides motorcycles like and is such a badass. You know, I fell in love with her, like literally really fell in love with her. And then the next semester took like took every one of her classes. I I think I took every class she ever taught um, while I was there. And I remember the first class I went and I wrote a paper and I I came back with it was just it looked like it was just bloody mess. It was just red marks across the entire thing. It was just completely marked up. And um, I went to her office hours or I saw her after class and she was like, Priscilla, if you continue to take my classes, I will teach you how to write. And I was like, "Okay, fuck. And what transpired and what followed was two and a half years of the most difficult writing I've ever done, the most difficult matriculation I've ever, you know, been a part of. And um, she ripped apart my essays like crazy. And, you know, we would have office hours and and she would write copious notes on my paper and we would have long discussions about it. But I was really shy, so I didn't really know how to fully engage her. But by my senior year, I think without me even realizing it, she submitted my essay to the Franco Tonelli Scholarship Award. And I won it. Wow. But it was it was literally going from getting like a D on my papers to her being committed to my success as a like a writer. And I'm I'm still not a great writer. And but because of her, I can write cogent thoughts. You know what I mean? I can formulate an argument in reading. I can discern whether or not someone's argument is sound, you know, Mm -hmm. And so she I really owe a lot of my life to her. So anyway, bringing that back to the startup life, going into copywriting and marketing was was totally possible only because Professor Lim had taken an interest. in shout out to Bliss Lim. I know, Bliss Lim, like my hero. When I moved out to L.A., I was trying to 
PA. I was trying to do on-air talent. You know, you know that. I, I was trying to gig. I ended up landing a job at this startup called Dog Vacay. And I was working at Dog Vacay during the day. And then I had a mar- another marketing um, internship that I was doing at night. And then I was um, driving home on the weekends to tutor kids um, just to make $600 rent. All, all of that was literally to make $600 a month rent because I was, you know, we were paid nothing when we were 23. So I ended up getting this job at um, Dog Vacay. I think I was employee number like seven. And it was actually a really cool world to get plugged into because this was in Santa Monica. It was in Silicon Beach. We were in an incubator called Science. Um, it, that was the name of the incubator. And it was like the guy who had sold MySpace or AOL or something. I, 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 I kind of forget now. But it, it was like a big deal. It was always in the press. It was always in the news. We sat right next to um, the people doing Dollar Shave Club. And I remember their like fucking um, label printer was printing all the time because they were selling so fast. It was really interesting to be part of that um, world, and it really shaped me. I definitely became like a startup bro. That's when I started drinking bourbon. Shout out to Austin LaRoche, who taught me how to drink brown liquor, um, and it taught me how to work. It taught me how to work hard. I remember at the time, like, it was always in balance whether or not I should stick with the nine to five job or quit and do music full time. And I know you and I, Roxy, would have conversations about it all the time. But the way that my mom was pressuring me was like kind of like your mom, like stability is king. So make sure to keep this job. Don't lose this job. It was always this anxiety of like, don't lose this job. That definitely defined my mid 20s, my early to mid 20s. Um, I think it was four and a half years at that startup. And I watched it grow from seven to 10 people um, to a hundred person team. Sorry to interrupt, but while this was happening at night, you would mm-hmm. like go and do gigs. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? That's so it's right. like, I remembered like you would, you would pack up your keyboard, you would go like, yeah. you've been singing, you know, like ever since forever. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. like you were always doing music That's and true. you were branded, you, you just called yourself Priscilla Liang, you yeah. know, like in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And like, I just see you working during the day and then like babysitting dogs or puppy sitting dogs. Oh, yeah. And then you would <laughs> drive to, Nirvana bar, you yeah. know, at night and then be like, hey, anybody want to come and like watch my show tonight? <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. How much were you paid for those gigs? Can you give a little insight on what that was like? I don't even think I was paid for Nirvana, maybe $50, maybe $50 for wow. like a three to four hour set. Yeah. Shout out to like Shin Kawasaki and Jason Yano. Like that was like where I cut my teeth in the gigging world for sure. So yeah, you're right. I was burning the candle at both ends. Um, I, I was working during the day and I would literally like get in my car, fight traffic all the way to little Tokyo, take like a 15 minute nap in the car, go and set up and play for three or four hours and hope and often to just drunk, stupid people who would rather be karaokeing than hearing me sing anyway. But it's where I cut my teeth. It's where I learned how to be on stage and learned how to build my confidence and build and and, and be my own persona, you know, be my like hold my ground. I have a question. Okay. I want you to tell me what your worst performance experience Ooh. was. I think worst performance, obviously, anytime you make a little mistake, like you think about that for the rest of your like night. Mm. Um, but I do remember this one time that I was singing this song and there was these Australian tourists in the crowd um, and they they ended up singing along to the song so hard that they came on the stage and pushed me off the stage. What? And then continued singing 
um, because there's a karaoke machine on the stage, continued singing for maybe another 20 minutes. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't I didn't understand how to regain control of the situation. So they were drunk and they enjoyed one of the covers I was doing. So they came on the stage and they basically edged me off the stage and continued karaoke for another like 20 minutes. Um, so that was probably like the worst night at Nirvana. Oh my Bar. God. Oh my God. That's so terrible. Just a wreck. You know what I mean? Like just, I didn't know how to get control of the situation. I didn't know what to do. Um, it was really awkward. No one was really there to see me anyway. No one was there to support. Do you still think about those days or like those memories? Like now when you're like performing in front of hundreds of people or that you're headlining your own show, you know what I mean? Like, I, for some reason, I'm just comparing this to like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You know what I mean? It's like in the beginning, she had to really cut her teeth to like yeah. really terrible crowds or like nobody That's in the true. crowd. And like, what what did it feel like not having that network of support yet while you're still trying to gain some sort of visibility in this city of like the hardest competition in the music industry? Like, what was that like? A gig's a gig. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, I still approach my gig life in very similar ways. You rehearse, you prepare, you you do the thing, and you dissect it to hell afterwards, right? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but I guess I guess what I have now, I have like things that I'm very confident that no matter if things are going off the rails, I know I can get it back on track because mm. of experience, you know. And now I know when to say no to a gig, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't know. It, it is like a gig is a gig. But I think there's a part of me that's very proud that I had that time of of struggle. You know what I mean? I'm very proud of that. But I wouldn't necessarily want to go and do that again. Yeah, I'm so I have so many questions for you regarding (laughs) this, because I I really don't know what it's like to be a musician trying to make their stake claim, uh, stake their claim in this city and in our community, because there's so many talented people. You know, it's like that constant comparison game. Right. Like. Like, how did you deal with that? Like, how did you start getting yourself known? You know, like, how did you, how did marketing help in any of it? And like, you, you were talking about like, oh, not really sure what your voice is, but your voice is so strong in your music and your storytelling comes through your music so profoundly because sometimes you write as characters, sometimes you write from memories. Like, you know, this is so you and that confidence really shines in your music. But when nobody knew who you were, how did you do that? I wonder if this is kind of how you feel about filmmaking now thinking about you at that time it was just like this blind belief in yourself and I don't even think it was like arrogance it was just like this weird maybe you can maybe it can like youth can account for it a little bit this weird youthful drive this non-quitting attitude of just tireless pursuit because I had this blind belief in myself for whatever Mm, reason amazing you know And, and and I don't even know that it was conscious I don't even know that I was actually thinking about myself in any any way but I was just like for whatever reason I was like I need to keep going I need to keep going I need to keep going and I didn't even have like an end goal per se but I was addicted to being on stage I was addicted to being in front of an audience I was addicted to sharing the songs that I had written um I was addicted to working on stage banter I was addicted to hanging out with people after shows all of it was was such a high for me that I kept chasing and just kept pursuing on like it was like the Duracell bunny. And now when I think if I look back at my calendar at the time, I'm, I'm exhausted looking at it, you know, cause I'm like, 
I don't even know what would compel someone to live like that, to be honest. And and it's all coming back to me as we're talking about It's it. sort of like a mania. It's mania. Yeah. Sometimes they have those bigger shows. Like I remember like at Wood's End where yeah. you had musicians, you know, and you were still making that chump change yeah. from like a small startup company. So like you would go and, and cut your teeth or like try and struggle your way through the working hours during yeah. the day. Then you would put your money back yeah. into the rehearsals and, and paying the musicians, right? Like for those bigger shows like can you tell me a little bit about that cycle too honestly you make very little money at first right and it is tough it is really tough but I would say I owe it even you know at the time I've never been like a good consistent content creator when it comes to like the internet or like social media but at the time I met some of my you know some really wonderful people that helped me a lot Dan, a.k.a. Dan, he, he's a rapper and he put me on sets and through him, I started hitting the college circuits. Right. And that it, and I still make money from that to this day. I still play the college circuit um, because clubs have money and and, you know, submitting to those ASBs, submitting to those Asian clubs like that's a big part of outreach that if you're just starting out could actually go further than you think. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was lucky to meet the Fung brothers and, and people like Jason Chu who would take me out and, and, and I would gig with them, you know? Um, and I was a nobody. I was literally a nobody. Nobody knew or cared who I was. Um, but I was out there just kind of open to any opportunity. And I remember like during my t- maybe 23rd year, I wrote like this Tumblr post and I was like, this is the year of saying yes. And I, I literally would say yes to everything. Any- I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Anything someone like, they're like, do you want to jump out of a building? I'm like, sure. Yes. Like I was just down for anything. You know, you learn like lessons along the way in that of when you shouldn't say yes, but it taught me a lot. It opened me up to a lot of experiences that I would have been too afraid of, that I was too fragile to face head on. And I I really owe it to the people that believed in me, took a chance on me. And also I have to, you know, to give myself credit, I wanted to show up at any of these opportunities. So I was prepared and um, I was always working on my stage presence and um, it wasn't what it is now then, but it was still like in its nascent form. And then I'm going to ask you a very hard question. Counter to that. Okay. Did you ever feel like a doormat? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about like, like, you know, being, because if you constantly say yes, Mm. at what point did that trigger sort of like, wait a second, like boundaries? I would say meeting my husband, Abe, was very important because he's eight years older than I am. And he's been in the music industry since he was 15. He was in a band called Nine Saves and they used to tour the church circuit. He's been in in multiple bands um, since then. And he was the first one to help me recognize because my friends would tell me, you would tell me, like, why are you playing these gigs? Why are you, you know, letting them use you like that? Um, But I never really understood it until he kind of enforced that you know he's like he he would kind of frame it for me he's like they're kind of treating you like shit you Mm. you realize that right he's Mm -hmm. like you need to understand that they're not the ones that are only offering you an opportunity they're gaining something from having you there and that wasn't something that i could see before holy shit yeah wow 
So like for okay, I don't you know I don't want to call anything out, but even like with something like collaboration, who I love collaboration, I give it a lot of credit. It was what, one of the biggest stage I'd ever played on at that time, and I think Run River North like closed the show, and it was like the coolest thing that I had ever been part of up until that time. And I I, I love collaboration, um, but while I was going through through the audition process, I was really really nervous, and um, like I had a conversation with my friend Ricky, and and another conversation separately with Abe, but just about how like. They're choosing people based on what these artists can bring to collaboration as well as these artists benefiting from the collaboration name. And I was like, wow, I never even considered that. You know what Mm. I mean? I think as a young artist, you're just like, I'll take any opportunity. But you have to like also recognize what your your own worth is, you know, and if you're not clear on that, then it's going to be a lot easier for people to steamroll you or use you or, yeah, uh, uh, treat you like a doormat for sure. That is such sound advice. Like, honestly, like just reframing the way that you've been approaching these quote unquote opportunities, right? Because there's a dark side to everything. And if you allow yourself to have open eyes towards that, it could really show you a lot of things, Mm. right? Especially about like where you are and your identity and your place in all of it. So then, um, Prisca, in terms of branding, Mm -hmm. like when did you decide to become Prisca and what is the meaning behind the name? I'm not necessarily like proud of this process, but I'm going to tell you guys like, really, what happened? I was managed by um, by this group called Acupuncture, who I really appreciate, really appreciate Sam. But there was this conversation we had where he was like, no one's going to be able to spell or pronounce Priscilla Liang. You should think about changing your name. I guess I'm grateful to him in a lot of ways because he wouldn't mince his words with me. And he he was always very honest. And I appreciate his honesty. I do. Um, But I think from this side of things, I I would tell my former self, you just fucking be you. You know what I mean? Do do what's good for you. Do do what's authentic to you. Do what feels good. But I think what I landed on was good. So Prisca was a name that my mom, it was a nickname only my mom used. And she's been calling me Prisca since I was a little kid. Only my mom ever used it. Nobody had ever called me that before. So when I decided to choose that name, there was there was something kind of like Sasha Fierce Beyonce about it that Mm -hmm. happened, which I think was I never like set out to have like an alter ego, but it has become that a little bit for me. And it does help me get into performance mode and it does help me, you know, kind of understand where I am in context, because if people are calling me Prisca, like I understand, like I understand what's required of me. Ah, now this Prisca and, and Priscilla thing, it, it's much more so merged, you know, it, yeah. it's not as disparate, but I think I needed that to build confidence in, in terms of like your experience of marketing and stuff. Sorry, this is where the conversation starts to converge a little bit, right? Because branding is such a thing with identifying yourself as an artist. And mm-hmm. there's this whole authenticity mantra that I have a lot of thoughts about in terms of our internet culture. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on like authenticity and what does it mean to you? That's a great question, Rox. I mean, you are fucking killing this interview. Um, <laughs> I think like, I think you and I came up at the most vapid time of the internet. Like we came of age at a time where Instagram was just hitting. Pinterest was like the pinnacle. Aesthetic was above all, right? And all like all of these posts that you see now where people have sh- are showing their double chins and talking about their mental health and being very honest about their pain points, that wasn't there right 8 years ago. 
That right. wasn't what the internet sounded like. It's not what it looked like. Right. So I 100% got caught up in chasing a certain aesthetic that I always felt I was never able to achieve. Um, and I always felt the more I was trying to do branding for myself, the more depressed I would get about it. And I would always like have to let go of it at some point because writing about yourself, putting together your own website, trying to formulate this constant content um, and identity, constantly fusing content with your identity was very exhausting. I'm still not very good at it. And it was ironic because at work, I could learn a lot about branding and learn a lot about copywriting. But when it came to doing it for my own stuff, um, it would burn me out so quickly. It yeah. would just, it made me feel dirty inside. I, I don't know how else to describe it, you know? And I'm glad that social media has shifted. I think now I feel more comfortable with what I want to share, what I don't, and I'm no longer chasing something. And, and this isn't something that I'm like, revolutionary i'm grateful for the people that have left let go of the aesthetic that have been letting down the curtain showing themselves their true selves them without makeup them having mental stroke like mental um health struggles anxiety struggles etc all of that has helped me get more comfortable and not be chasing and uh, always feeling I, I like i was behind on something you know, you are like just hearing you talk right now. You've blossomed into like this queen <laughs> of like knowledge and groundedness and stability and and a confidence yeah. and a wavering confidence in the things that you say. But when you were come thinking about those times in your twenties, when we were living through that vapid mm -hmm. time, as mm -hmm. you were talking about, and the constant comparison game and the constant social media and the constant like having to up yourself and seeing everybody live all these lives and have all these gigs and have all this success, yeah. like how did you root yourself emotionally? And what advice would you give to those younger women? Yeah. Who are struggling with that. After Bourdain passed away, I think Eddie Huang was interviewed and, and he said the best piece of advice that Bourdain ever gave him was don't suck the dick. And and I, I know that's, you know, not the most appropriate language for a lady, <laughs> but I was like, oh, my God, like I kind of understand that. I would say, like, the thing I'm most proud of is having Abe by my side to help me not buy into my own hype ever. Um, because it was hard because I was constantly gigging. I was traveling for gigging. I was enjoying that process. And, and I was constantly gigging because the people that I looked up to, they were constantly gigging. So I wanted to create a schedule for myself where I was also constantly gigging. And if I wasn't, I felt like I was behind. Right. Secondly, I put out an EP. And before this EP, there was a lot of, I guess, expectation or a lot of what people would tell me, like, I can't wait till you put out music. I can't wait. It's going to blow up. It's going to be all these things. It's going to change this. It's going to do that. You know, it's going to be your calling card. And I put out this EP, not to discount the people that did support me and, and who did listen to it and did, you know, give me support and whatnot. But generally, the EP did, did nothing. <laughs> like, even now, like, on my Spotify, like, it gets almost no listens. Um, and I'm proud of the project. That's not the thing. It's I thought the EP, I thought when the EP came out, I thought I was going to get tapped for something. I thought, you know, I thought my doormat status in the Asian American community was going to completely change, but it didn't. And actually that was really, really, really tough to swallow. And I dealt with it very privately because I was embarrassed. Honestly, I was so embarrassed because in the year that I released it, I had started to buy into my own hype. 
just like hearing you say all of this like out loud is like so courageous of you priscilla because not a lot of people can i'm sweating (laughs) no like it is incredibly brave i'm like oh my god i can't believe you're saying all this and like revealing Mm. the truth in this way but like since you did make that ep like what is next for you like is there a next step like since that quote-unquote failure as you see it like how 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 has it been like reflecting upon that and trying to figure out what's next that's a big question you know i've talked about this but not in this context but moving to ashland what that did for me was prior to moving to ashland i was gigging all the time i was running a music program at hotel indigo i was you know showing i was being interviewed for you know, Asian American podcasts. And I was showing up on Asian American YouTube channels every now and then. And I thought that I was on a path to success and removing myself from that made me realize one, the LA Asian American community does not need me, which is, I know it sounds so silly, I guess, or maybe like frivolous even, but Asian American community in LA did not need me. And I didn't realize that I thought that they needed me until I left and recognized that they didn't need me. And then I realized that I was addicted to being needed. Mm-hmm. And that's what drove me mm-hmm. was, well, they need me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how um, I was in the church circuit too. So I, re- I recognized it, it went a lot deeper than that. But so removing myself from it, I had to make amends with people because I realized I had become competitive And I had let this pursuit, this ambition cloud a lot of my friendships and maybe cloud is too nice of a word. I'd let competition define a lot of my friendships. And so I think what Ashlyn was good for me was it was almost like a detox. Like you have the bends and and, and you have to be put into like a hyperbolic chamber to kind of, you know, to, to, to normalize, to neutralize again that's what it was for me and it was very painful and it wasn't fun and I didn't enjoy a lot of that process because when that neutralization is occurring like your entire body feels like it's lacking something I think coming back and and you know even moving to New York coming back to LA now I just do whatever the fuck I want because I am enjoying whatever the fuck I want to do and if I want to put something out I'll put something out if 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 I don't And, you know, I have my days, but if I don't want to do something, then I just will not. And even like, I'm just going to use this as an example for right now, even with like the TikTok videos, I was doing TikTok videos. I was part of the creative learning fund. I was doing, you know, cooking videos one a day for, for two months, basically. And I knew at the end of it that I was so burnt out that I'm like, I'm just going to stop for a bit and I can start when I'm ready, but I don't want to just do it because I don't want to suck the dick the yeah. content to own yes. me. I don't want the content to become my boss. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm not saying this is a recipe for success on the internet. That's not what I'm saying. But it's a recipe for success for me to maintain my mental health and maintain my awareness of who I am and what I want. Amen to that, sister. <laughs> Holy shit. You guys, Prisca just dropped major knowledge bombs, love bombs, wisdom bombs throughout that whole section. And we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. We love hanging out with you and it's what we look forward to every single week. 
If you're liking what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It will help us a lot so we can continue to hang out every single week and make content for you. Thank you so much. And remember, stay horny. Okay, guys, welcome back from the break. Um, Oh, my God, I got so much done. I cleaned my house and I look different now. I'm two inches taller. Um, And so (laughs) this half of the show in topic two, we are going to focus on the origins of Roxy. Um, Thank you guys for listening to me kind of ramble about my life story. But oh, my God, stop. There was so much nuggets of gold (laughs) in that, Priscilla. Never, ever downplay what you just shared because I'm still like buzzing from it. I'm wearing a white t-shirt and I'm sweating through it. So I'm sorry if you can see. It's now gray. I know. It's it's now gray. Yeah. It's like a storm cloud. Um, So Rox, you know, everyone knows you as a filmmaker and I just kind of want to know, like, what were some other occupations that you thought you might pursue when you were younger? I really wanted to be a flight attendant. And I I say that with like the most utmost like sincerity when I was younger because I traveled so much and I moved around so much when I was younger. Um, and I, there was something so romantic about it. And then suddenly as I grew older, it didn't seem like the prestigious sort of occupation that like my family (laughs) revered or that anybody really, you know, it was just like you serve on a plane, which I, I love flight attendants. Like, please don't like, if you're a flight attendant, I wanted your job and I kind of still want it sometimes. Would you like a hot towel? So, um, you know, like, yes, like you'd toxic, be a first class Yes, yes, yes. Um, and and um, there was something so romantic about it. But, and then I just sort of lost myself, you know, mm. growing up and going to college. I majored in sociology and film studies with a minor in digital arts because, you know what, I just wanted to do it all because I had no sense of direction at all. Yeah. Why did you pursue so many things? Were, 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 was that your parents? Was that trying to cover more bases? Yeah, it was sort of like what you were saying, practical hustle versus creative hustle, right? Like you mentioned that in the previous episode. And so sociology, I was like, well, I am endlessly curious about people and communities and society. And and I genuinely enjoy um, what I'm learning. So then maybe one day I'll go into like the social justice system or like I'll become a lawyer of some kind, civil rights lawyer, maybe do some criminology. And but the thing is that like it's so daunting looking at all of those books you know that I have to read and um, I get so distracted because like naturally who I am is like music art Mm. you know Mm. storytelling like same as you like I love I was on MCIA I uh, was in the symphony and then I started um, I watched the umbrellas of Sherberg in film 101 and I was just like oh my god like I must take on a second major (laughs) (laughs) oh so you didn't come in thinking you were gonna do film no I was like I thought I was gonna be like a you know, um, social worker or something. Yeah. And I was like, I'll do something for the world. And, um, but it just wasn't, it was me denying, um, my essence. Wow. Um, but I will say that Soch definitely helps me a lot, you yeah. know, like in my work, uh, Bang Joon-ho was a Soch major as well. Hey. If you honestly think about it, everything that you learned in your past could be applied to your present life if you choose to reframe your situation. So then um, I basically, when we graduated, Prisca, I don't know, 
Like I was, I was still just a mess of a social butterfly. Like I wanted to do everything, wanted to be everything because I had no direction. And I, and you know, representation, like name one Asian female director working in the USA that was known during that time when we were 23, there was no one. Mm -hmm. There was no Lulu Wang. You know what I mean? There's maybe Ang Lee, but, but how is he besides just being Taiwanese or Asian, you know? Yeah. And like we didn't go. It wasn't go, exactly encouraging. No. <laughs> and and we didn't go to get our master's degree. We didn't actually go to film school. You know, we went to a university and had a film studies major, but we didn't learn craft. You know, we mm-hmm. didn't go to mm-hmm. USC film school or UCLA film school where it's like literally after your undergraduate program, you go and you learn focus and directing, focus and cinematography, focus and production design, whatever. Right. Like we didn't do that. So then. In a way, you and I were sort of in a situation where we're just like, well, we're just sort of here. Yeah. We're yeah. in Los Angeles, but we're sort of like, you, you know, for some reason, I'm thinking of like the little parts in like an auto mechanic store. We're not like the engine or the mm. motor or anything important. So we're just like the little, you know, bolts and knots. Right. Yeah. Like auxiliary. Very auxiliary. auxiliary. And I'm like, oh, yeah. there's a bunch of other ones. I guess we'll just wait until you need us. And if you get worn down, then they'll have another one within the hour. Like, exactly. Easy. But so how did your parents feel about you being so lost? Like, did they have certain expectations for you? They wanted me to go get a master's degree. In in what? In, in anything in particular or just anything? In anything. They were like, the next step is that, you know, yeah. and I remembered, I, I remembered graduating <laughs> our fourth year. And I don't know if you went through this, but I was just like, no, <laughs> like if there's anything I know yeah. is that I am not doing that. Like, I don't want to sit and write papers. I, I want to go and do something with my hands. And I want to go and experience. Like, if there's anything that was driving me, it was just, I know I had to be around the experience. I had to get my hands dirty. The best way I learn is through experience. So then I was like, I made, a, I made a little deal with my mother. Oh, okay. What was that deal? So she was like, you come back... I love you, mom. I'm sorry that I have to say this, but I have to speak the truth because I took an oath when I did two horny goats that I will always speak the truth. And um, it's like being on the witness stand. There you um, go. Yeah. <laughs> Our hands are on Bibles, guys. Or, or the Torah or, you know, whatever, whatever. religious text you read. Yeah. The Quran. Respect everyone. Yeah. Um, and I said, uh, she was like, you should move back to Taiwan and lose weight. And wow. she's like, I will take care of you. You will live with me. And uh, you could just write screenplays or whatever if that's what you want to do. She goes, but you will lose weight. So her priority was, you know, my weight. And then me, and she was like, are you going to go get a master's degree? Or you're not going to do that? What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. And then I said, give me six months in Los Angeles. Wow. Help me get through six months in Los Angeles. And if I can't get myself a life or at least a semblance of a direction of where I'm going, then yeah, I'll go home. I'll go back to Taiwan and I'll just spend the year losing weight. Okay. I'm so curious then in those six months, what was your mindset? Like what, like what did you do? Fuck. I went fucking crazy. (laughs) I went on Craigslist. You know, I was, you know, Rochelle and I drove up to Los Angeles. We literally booked like an apartment that very same day. Oh my God. And then we were just like, our new life is starting. We want to live life on our own terms. At least we wanted to try to see if we would become failures. You know, like we don't want to be like, we don't want to accept anything just yet when that energy and, and the possibilities were so fresh. And just so people know, we went to school at UC Irvine. That's in the South OC. Right. And even though LA is only an hour away it felt like an entire it felt like moving to an an entirely new place 
like a new planet. hundred percent. Right? Oh yeah, the OC versus Los Angeles. <laughs> I, there's like, it's a world of a difference, basically. And then I remembered this. Oh, I was living on Mentone Avenue. That's where Prisca and I also live together. Yes. Yep. And I remembered I just moved into that apartment, and I was at the Rite Aid buying tampons, like maybe a week or two afterwards. And as one there was does. this, as one does. And there was this man, you know, he was like checking out my items and he's like this older black man. And then he looked at me and I was just like smiling stupidly because I was this high off the fact that I just moved to Los Angeles. Wow. I was buzzing, you know, and then he looked at me strangely and he's like, you're not from here, are you? I'm like, no. And then he's like, what are you trying to do? Act, right? Like, are you are you trying to pursue acting? And I said, no, I want to be a director. I mean, I wow. didn't know I wanted to be a director. It was just something that I threw out there because it's still sort of like a pipe dream right okay i'm gonna i'm gonna follow that up after but okay yes okay Okay, so so i'm like i want to be a director and then the first thing he said was oof you're gonna get a lot of no's wow he's like you're gonna he's like it's fucking tough right and then i was so defeated like i was so sad like looking at my tampons right just like (laughs) you and your tampons i was just like i was just (laughs) so sad and then he looked at me and he was just like but when you get the first yes then all the yeses start coming. So he's wow. like, so don't give up until you get that first yes, okay? Okay, that took a turn because I was like, oh, that's fucking sad. And then, and you know what I mean? He, he had some wisdom there. Oh my God, I will never forget that conversation I had with him. Yeah. It is so profound and it is something that I say to a lot, to like a lot of my mentees and like the people I speak to now is like, you're going to get a lot of no's, but once that first yes comes, all the other yeses start coming and it is so true. Wow. Okay, let's take it back just a little bit because I remember being on set um, for a number of your projects, but let's talk about Ernest. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know if that was like your first piece, but it was definitely one of your first pieces. And it was definitely a piece in which you had uh, 20 actors on set or 20 dancers, 20 actors yeah. on set. Yeah. You had a full crew, whether or not, you know, everyone knew what they were doing. That's another conversation, but you had a full crew of probably like seven to nine people that you were in charge of. And that was the first time that I personally saw director Roxy at play. So for me, in my mind, you had that thing. You know what I mean? On set, you had that thing. What was what was it like working on that project? Kind of being like your first kind of thing where you were controlling the entire narrative. Oh, my God. It was. Um, gosh, I forgot about Ernest. <laughs> Ernest was very special to me because it's like I was it's incredibly cerebral yeah. and it's so meta that no one understood it because everything is like done through images. And it's right. about like an egg and being human and also being an <laughs> android in the future. And, you know, there's like no money. So you're just asking everyone to dress in black and act like a robot. You know yes. what I mean? Yep. So it was just I like, was one of the robots and <laughs> I'm was so always- proud. You I was a so, robot PA. <laughs> you were so great. And I remember Rochelle had really loud shoes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That was really cool, though, because it kind of set the mon- like the metronome for everybody. In a yeah. Way. yeah. <laughs> her, her boots were so loud. Um, and uh, my friend Jason Sue, love you, Sue, one of my best friends, played the, the lead. And um, I think it's so interesting because at the time... Mm-hmm. You know how I was talking about there's like the popular group of filmmakers like at school. There's always that one group of people where they're like, we're going to be successful in the future. And this is our path. And and I wasn't a part of that. And I'm like, I'm never going to be successful. I'm never going to actually make it. So it's strange because like when I was there thinking about it. In the back of my mind, I was like, I'm never going to be a real filmmaker. Whoa. Yeah. And I was like, this is just me 
pretending. Like, I honestly felt that no matter what I did, no one would enjoy my work. Even on set? Even? Yes, even on set. Like, I just felt no one would, like, if I couldn't get the recognition within my own school, then what's the point? Like, it it was beautiful because, like, I think in that moment... I was just happy that I had yeah. friends who like supported me and like wanted yeah. to play Dadacho or like play pretend <laughs> with me. Yeah. And like honestly, Priska, thinking about how I felt during that time, I felt like I was like my friends played along to like my little imaginary journey. Whoa. Like that's what that felt like. There was no confidence there. It was just like, well, they're all in to play this, so I I, I better, like, take advantage of it as much as I can. Like, that's how I felt. Obviously, it's a completely different story now. Sure. But it's so crazy because at the time, I thought you were the cool kid making films. You know what I'm saying? I thought you were, when I saw you on set, I was like, wow, the way she can command this entire room of people, um, the way that she's balancing all these elements and i've said this to you before the way you were open about what you didn't know and 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 so that people could tell you what it was um Mm -hmm. that amount of confidence whether it was kind of fake it till you make it or you know or or, or i know you've said it's an attitude you put on until you become it kind of yeah i i guess was none the wiser you know i i fell under your spell for sure but i i understand that feeling of almost feeling like a fraud and, and, and feeling like, oh, everyone's just kind of being nice. But what kept you going then? If, if that's really what you felt like, what, what was the thing that continued um, pushing you to the next project and the next? You know, it's kind of crazy. It's like what you were talking about, that sort of blind faith Mm -hmm. in yourself. But it wasn't directing for me. It was just that I wanted to be a part of this industry so bad that I didn't care what it was. What was the thing about the industry that drew you in? Like, what was that thing that made your boner so hard you know it was a uh, it was when i first watched the umbrellas of sherberg in that film 101 class and i just remembered feeling so moved by this film and like that it was a french movie made 40 years ago it's in another language and like it was so tragic so romantic and um you know all the kids just sort of like got up and left after lecture i was 19 and um and i was in tears just like holding my book you know just like sitting in credits and being so moved by the fact that I don't know these people and I don't know this filmmaker. It's another culture, another language, another whatever, but cinema language is transcendent and that it could affect me, you know, this 19 year old Taiwanese American girl sitting at UCI trying to like get through life and how it moved me so emotionally that I was like, I don't care what it is that I do. I just have to be a part of making that magic. Like I just have to be a part of it, you know? So it was the industry itself And I remember you were one of the only people I knew who was voraciously studying all the vernacular all the time, the on-set vernacular. Yes. And even though like you, I remember we'd get on set and and you're like, you know, you're like spewing off some vernacular. And I'm like, what does that mean? You're like, I don't know. I just have heard people say that. And I'm like, I would be like 86 that. (laughs) (laughs) Or like sticks. Like, you know, yeah, we're the sticks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Second sticks. (laughs) Okay, so you're you're done with college, you move to LA, you have this basically six month incubator that you've set up for yourself between mm-hmm. you and your mom. What was kind of going on during that time? And and, and what was the slog kind of like? 
So, like, I met Pepper J. Shout out, Pepper. Pepper. Um, she, she, she had, like, this uh, girl who was working for her, Mary Jo, who was, like, one of her live video editors. So she right. did, like, this live digital chat show. You can still stream a lot of it online. Yes. It's all there. Um, I've and hosted she, like, one. <laughs> she hosted one. And it was, like, in her garage. You know what I mean? Just a controlled environment. Very, like, MacGyver, you know, do it with your hands. Which is something that I really was pulled towards. That, like, anyone can make content. And, like, Pepper J is, like, you know, she was in her 60s, mid-60s, so she's, like, this um, older woman who's, like, super hippie, like, smokes a lot of weed, but also is a lawyer, you know, but, like, also is a producer. So she was, like, all these things. And Mary Jo found me on Craigslist, and, you know, it was $10 an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That sounds familiar. And I went in, and, uh, you know, and basically what I did was I did the live editing of the chat show. Um, that was happening every single morning. I work for maybe three hours a day, nine to 12 o'clock. And then I go home, make $30 a day. You and know that was what a I drive. mean? That was, that was not a drive. A, yeah. It was from uh, the West side to like uh, Hollywood, right? Hollywood. Yes. Every day. But then, you know, she allowed me after a while. It's like, I learned a lot from Pepper J actually. Like it may not seem very shiny or big at the very top, but she taught me like how to speak up for myself Every time, you know, my mom is like, never take a compliment because it's not what they really mean. Pepper J made me unlearn that. She goes, accept it. Say thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. And then mm-hmm. she goes, if you don't have anything nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. Like she really helped me navigate like how to talk to people and how to sort of like build up from there. Then she started allowing me to host. Wow. That's right. And you and I both have hosting experience, which is yeah. like <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of a humble <laughs> Like, if you're wondering, oh, my God, like, why is, like, Prisca and Roxy so good at the art of conversation? (laughs) Well, you know, we both have experience hosting. So I learned how to host from her. And then, um, you know, and then at first I just thought, like, where do I go from here? Because then she moved away to, like, Nevada to, like, build her own ranch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they kind of basically adopted you as their daughter in in a lot of ways. And, 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 And to be fair... You took on a lot more work than um, you were paid for. Oh, a hundred percent during a certain time. Not, not oh, 100%, to no shade yeah. on them. It's they they were fantastic. It's just you were in a position where you were willing to take on so much because you wanted to learn everything. And I think that when you're in your early twenties, you take advantage of that. You know, it's like. Um, there's an opportunity to grow. Do you do it? Yes. You know, because I think there's so much untapped potential that you don't even know about yourself during that time. Like your, your conditioning, the way you grew up, what people told you you were. And, um, there are certain people in your life who come into it, certain mentors. And I consider her one of my mentors who help bring out different strengths in you. You know what I mean? So for so then like, you know, after that, she did refer me to a lot of work. Like I would work for ten dollars for her and then she'll be like, Hey, you need an editor, Roxy's fifty dollars an hour. Like she'll say that, you know, and like So she was upselling you. She's upselling me, so there's like a still like an undying loyalty, you know, like when you sort of wanna come back to her. And um I give her you know, it was a very MacGyver, very sort of do it by your hands sort of deal, but you know, I met my boyfriend through her at the time, yeah. you know, like I met Aww. and then a lot of bought, people right? bought. Oh yes. my gosh, I can't <laughs> believe he. Wow, that's crazy. But OK, so I have this undying image in my mind of living with you at Mentone and I would 
either I would never see you because you were always on set or you were on calls for like I would go to sleep and you would be on a call and I would wake up and you'd still be on calls. Mm-hmm. And your Blackberry was like, ba-dum, 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 <laughs> all the time, all day, yeah. all the time. But you were working for peanuts. Literally, you were working for no money, but you were doing student films. You were doing, you know, little side projects. You were doing corporate gigs. You were doing all of these things. Um, really, there was no honor or acclaim or glamour. What kept you going during that time? I think my priority during that time was build, 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 build. Mm. I was like, no one knows me in this city. This is literally starting from zero. Yeah. You don't have the resources or relationships from film school. You don't have, um, you don't have any contact who could like get you into an entry level position at a production company. I was just like, I just got to do this my own way, you know? So it's like Pepper through her. She had a lot of people that she could refer me to as her freelancing for them. You know, it was like VC visual communications. I got armed with a camera and like trying to see what I could build from there. At that point, I knew that it was useless of me to think about like a bigger picture because I didn't even have the bricks to build my foundation. Yeah. What was like, what was like one of the worst and no, we don't have to name names, but what was one of the worst projects you took on at the time? One of the worst projects I took on, this is very easy because this person (laughs) turns out to be like a narcissistic psychopath, but, um, this, there was this producer who was so about himself and there, there's actually, there's a couple of them. Guess what? They're all men. (laughs) (laughs) Misogynistic and, you know, and, and I didn't recognize what these, you know, terrible traits were at the time you know we weren't we weren't exposed to it we didn't know how to handle it we didn't recognize it not in the way that we do now yeah right and so I was just allowing myself to be like hey we need revisions on this like right now by 4 a.m I was like 4 a.m who the fuck is up at 4 a.m but okay I guess I'll do it like I didn't know how to say no because like it was already so hard like you said like getting 600 dollars for rent yeah well what about my food budget you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. and your car like in your car and there's like nothing you couldn't afford to lose anymore yeah so you burn yourself at both ends until you're absolute crisp right and but then it's like that duracell bunny or energizer bunny you're talking about it's just like willpower yeah you know and being like i just have to whatever it is that i do now you don't really have anything to your name so it's like if you fuck up this relationship with this person what you get is a ding in your reputation right. it's rather how it, than a good one. It felt one. like high stakes, yes. even though now it's like it's really not. But at the time, it really feels like it is. Because you had nothing. Yeah. Did you ever feel like quitting? All the time. <laughs> all the time. I wanted to quit all the time. And I, was, I would question myself all the time. Like, is this worth it? Where is this going? What if it's not going anywhere? Holy fuck. You know, then you're like in a spiral of emotions and a spiral, a spiral of darkness being like, what if all this effort is for nothing? Because at that time, Priscilla, like I remember thinking, how is this even going to get me anywhere? Yeah. Like, who's going to hire me to direct something ever? Yeah. Like, oh my God, sorry, this is getting me kind of emotional because I remembered how that felt, how that felt. Like, I remembered, like, it just didn't seem possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it just seemed like you were always going to have to do a million things to make enough to just stay alive. Yeah, that you're constantly just doing a bunch of little things, but it's never really attributing towards the bigger goal that you have. And was that and- tough? Because, like, you kind of had to sell what you were doing to your parents who were in Taiwan. Yeah, my mom was just like, my mom and dad, they were just like, how is this, 
going anywhere. Like you have to, they're like Roxy, you have to come back to reality at some point. And things took a shift for me in 2014 because after that I started, you know, I started producing micro budget movies and, you know, just trying to make contacts. And what, what people did appreciate about me is that I, I'm not a hero, you know, like I never, I always, I, if I don't know something, I'll say it. Exactly. And so it's like, I can't pretend that I knew how to produce. Like if I, if I fuck up, I acknowledge it and I learn from it. And then, so I started, you know, producing a lot of little pieces and some feature films. And then I was like, oh, at least I'm going somewhere. At least I'm making stuff. Right. Right. Like what project was it that kind of made you like, you know, just a ray of hope. What, what project kind of kicked that off? (sighs) If I'm being real with myself, it's like, it was cool that they were made, but every time it got recognition, it never felt like it was mine. Mm. And it's cool. It's like, oh, street cred, you know what I mean? Or like more bonus points upon your IMDb. So you could tell yourself that you're like a valid person or a valid filmmaker or however the fuck you want to justify it to yourself. But things really changed in 2014 when my friend Jason Cartalian, who directed Seahorses, was like... Um, you know, hey kid, like no one's going to take you seriously until you make a first feature film as a director. And I'm like, how the fuck is that going to happen? Yeah. Who is going to, I don't have film school knowledge. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing really. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I see you always making like your little short films every year with your friends. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, but it's sort of like a pipe dream. Right. And I'm like, and also practically speaking, Asian woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't happen. And this was like before the inclusion and diversity conversation started happening. Right. And then he was just like, um, I'll give you my camera. I'll give you my G&E gear. No excuses. You have a camera in your hands. Go make a movie. Wow. Holy shit. And so this was because you were like super producer Roxy for a number of years. When did you personally interior like when did you decide I want to be a director for sure? I don't think that moment ever came. I think that that moment when Jason said there's no excuse right Mm -hmm. like you have a camera stop letting your preconceived notions about being a woman or being a minority like let all of that go right yeah and then um I that planted a seed and literally the universe has started shifting rapidly after that moment like my friend had a script that was written for low budget one location five actors on a ranch a, a story about sisters you know what I mean And then that happened two weeks after I had the lunch with Jason and then I read it and I'm like, oh my God, like I want to do this strangely. Like I want to tell this story. Like it wasn't like, yeah, it could be produced for however much money. It was like, I felt pulled towards it. And then, and then Ian was like, you know what, I'll, I'll come on and help you whatever pass you want to do. He's like, I'm here for it. Like I'm here to help you every step of the way, like whatever it takes And then seriously, I went and then, you know, I went to Kickstarter. I raised money for it. I I put all my eggs in the basket um, money wise. I drew out a bunch of like a line of credit for it on my own that I'm still paying off, but it's worth it. And then I went to my parents and I said, I never got a master's degree. I never pursued graduate school. And I said, let this be my graduate school. If you would help me support that. And I, and then my parents are like, okay, we'll give you X amount of dollars, right? They're like, Roxy, here's the condition if you fail. And by failing, I mean you don't get a job as a director after this movie. You have to switch industries. You have to do something else with your life. Wow. But 
if you do get that second job and it leads somewhere, then this was the right thing to do. Shit. That's some fucking Asian ass parenting right there. Like, that's some intense shit right there. But you took it to heart. Yeah, because they gave me money to help me make it, right? So then I was like, all right, here we go. All or nothing. Yeah. And then um, I learned a lot. That became The Tribe, my first wow. movie. Wow. And Sheldon was on that, right? Sheldon shot it. It, wow. was, it was both our first feature films. Wow. That's fucking crazy. It was it was beautiful. And I remember having so much fun on it. And, and directing felt so natural, like being properly supported with like a, like a crew of more than five people, you know, like... It was, it was like, there was money, there was budget. Well, not a lot, but you know, like I was like through everyone's help, you know, it's like when you said people, you got, you raised $10,000 in like the first day or something like that. Like people came in and really showed up on my Kickstarter too. Wow. And then I was like, internally, I'm like, I can't fail. Like I absolutely, this is too much money. This is just too much everything. Like I can't fail. So then I... So then I met Michael, who played um, Ryan in, in yeah. the movie. He was a male lead. Turns out he was a producer. He ended up producing Dark Web, brought me on to direct the first season. The movie played at a film festival in Austin. And a, a friend I made there, you know, referred me to my second job, Painkillers. Wow. And so, so the yeses started to roll The in. yeses started coming oh after my God. that. And how many years, how many years into your career was that? I... Like six years? The tribe was released 2016. Oh, okay. So like 4 years, 4 or 5 years into I've been I've been directing for I guess professionally or however people legitimately or whatever. Maybe 4 or 5 years now, yeah. Yeah. But it feels so much longer than that. It feels like I've been doing this for like 20 years. Oh, totally. Totally. You know, I I I can I have two distinct views of you in my in my mind. It's the sitting with your BlackBerry unendingly doing work for nothing. And then this powerful bitch ass queen sitting in front of me who learned to say no to things. Mm. What in that transition, what helped you learn how to say no to projects? This happened once I started getting recognition. And I think I touched on this before in a previous episode. I think we talked talked about this a little bit, but it was like suddenly when you realize people are look at, looking at you differently, mm-hmm. you know, people are listening to you and instead of just waving you off, like you, you're nothing. I've always been the same person. You've always been the same person. You know, it's like, but it's the way people see you that gives you that power. And yeah. it sucks. Yeah. Because like, some people have to prove themselves over and over and over yeah. again. Doesn't matter. Especially like how, in LA. Especially in LA. It's like you have a wealth of experience, but it's like freelancing. You're at a new company. No one knows who you are. Do you have clout? Yeah. My clout protects me. My clout, my reputation protects me. And then now it's just like, oh, you know, there's people who say good things about you. Your reputation starts to precede you. People have heard of Prisca. People have heard of Roxy. And that's when I'm like, Oh my God, there it is. My layer of protection. Right. But even still in that. Yeah. Like even still in that, it's still a muscle that you have to build up to say no to things. Right. Because even if you have that clout, it could be, it could lend itself to even more anxiety of like, I need to continue to do more and more and more. But I feel like you worked on yourself to get to a place where you're comfortable enough with yourself, um, where you, you built up that muscle to say no and to set boundaries. So what it's was like, that kind of like? 
Yeah, it's like I think before you had no idea that you are your own protector. Hmm. Wow. You wow. had no idea that you're the one that's protecting you. And so it's like nowadays I'm smart enough and I have the experience enough where whereas before it was like, okay, I still have to keep proving, right? Because there's a there's a fear of instability. There's a fear of the rug getting pulled out under you. But now it's like um, now, for example, if a job comes to me that I want to offer you X amount of money, I'm yeah. like, okay, what are the parameters and conditions, right? Wow. Like I'm smart enough to know what I can commit or if I'm being set up to fail or succeed. Right. And what your worth is, what you're bringing to the table. Hell kind of yeah. similar to like what we were saying about clout. Clout goes both ways. You offer them clout. They offer you clout. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not, it, it's not, you're not a beggar. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, I was reading something. I don't know where I was reading this from, but I was just like, you are creme brulee. All right. Yeah. Anything that somebody can add to you or a partnership or a business or a collaborator can add to you is just the riseberry on top. Yeah. Yeah. But you are already the creme brulee. Oh shit, bitch. Yeah. You got that sugar burnt top. That creamy pudding in the middle. But you know, it's like, I think everybody needs to go through this. Definitely. You are not creme brulee in your twenties to start with. No, you, and and no one And to become creme brulee, you need to go through fire. Yes. Whoa. Look at this freaking (laughs) metaphor, bitch. A hundred percent. We're just building on this metaphor, but okay. So I have, I, I guess I I do want to ask you, how do you want to give back to the next generation? And part of that is like, basically, like, what would you tell your 23 year old self? If you see a 23 year old Roxy out there, how do you want to give back? And what advice would you give them? I would say, but I, but again, it's sort of like the thing about advice. It's like they sort of have to go through it to really understand this. Two things. Number one, your energy is your most important asset. Mm. don't deplete it too quickly or put it in places that don't deserve your time but then you have to know what deserves your time right and Mm -hmm. um there was there was a second part work smart not hard Mm. like i was moving right and remember i was like i could do this all myself it's just down the hall i could carry everything like i could do I could do, I don't need any help. Yeah. And then literally the day before, I'm like, I'm going to call movers. Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. I did. I called movers and it was done within an hour. And I was like, oh, that is nice. You know, <laughs> and, and then like a, a part of me, and then, you know, there was a part of me that was like, maybe I should call cleaners too. And like the old, but then there was a part of me that was like, no, I could do it all myself. Right. And then I didn't think about how exhausted I would actually be. Mm. And then I was cleaning and I was like, I don't have the energy to deep clean. And it was later on the day. I'm like, I should have listened to myself the day before and got someone to come in for like 50 bucks to like do this. That's some adult shit. That's some adult shit. And I was like, I I could be using this time to unpack, to, you know, to um, reframe my mindset, reframe my mind and. Um, have some time to, you know, just settle into my new space and, re- and and acclimate myself. But, you know, I would just say um, work smart, not hard. Yeah. Do you want to mentor younger filmmakers? Is that something I do mentor. that's on your... You do? Okay. So what's I that do. been like? It's been really great. I mean, Leatrice, um, who uh, is, is one of my really good friends. I, she was my mentee, I think, for the past 
years. I was an AWC mentor for her. I encouraged her to apply. She got in. And then um, she was also like one of the shining stars at UCI for um, filmmaking. And she's just so great. And I, I just really loved her, loved her energy. And so I will continue to mentor her for as long as she needs me to yeah. be her mentor. And I think um, if I, I'm always um, being invited to, you know, um, sign up for these mentorship programs. So I do what I can because I don't take too many mentees. I just really think that like I can only give my time and energy to like maybe one person a year mm. and like um, see, you know, check in with them, see how they are, and what their focus is. I did I did, did I did another mentorship program through Tap LA and I, um, I had a mentee named Candice and that was really wonderful. She's also making stuff. Oh, yeah. Does it feel good to kind of take it full circle at this point? Oh, a hundred percent. Like you have to give back. I feel <laughs> however you can. I mean, yeah. like we're doing this sometimes I'm like, maybe and another reason why I sort of want to talk about, you know, this topic is because I can't mentor everybody, you know, every emerging filmmaker, like tap, you know, Taiwanese American film festival. We had a mentorship program there as well. Yep. Like, because I did not get this information, I did not get access to resources or a community that really saw me, yeah. you know, coming out here. I want to make sure I could do that as within my power as much as possible moving yeah. forward in my life. Wow. Well, Rox, thanks for sharing so honestly and openly um, because it's not easy. It's not easy to share our insecurities, the things we're scared of, the things that we experience doubt in and like your tampon moment out at that CVS, like... I think a lot of people are might be right there. They might still be in line for, you know, that. And, and, and you're the guy telling them, like, yeah, you're going to experience a lot of no's. But once the yeses come, like, they roll in. You know what I mean? They just keep coming in. So Amen to that, sister. <laughs> um, well, thank you. If anyone has any questions for Roxy or, or, or me, um, go ahead and email us at hello at twohornygoats.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on where you're at in your career. And um, and if you have questions specifically, you know, for Roxy or for me, please shoot them our way. And now it's time for... So my picks, they're both food picks this week. And Love? actually, my husband's going to kill me for rec- recommending Why? this. Because it's kind of like a secret. <laughs> it's kind of like a secret. <laughs> I um, want to know. What I, is it? I, I, I do not understand how this hasn't hit, like, you know cult status um but it's called um miroc I'm, pro- I'm saying it wrong it's probably like miroc um it's miroc and it's they do a black goat stew um and okay obviously not everyone's into like gamey tasting meats but what they do is they cover it in like chives and um sometimes like dandelion greens or perilla leaves to kind of like balance out that gaminess and it's this uh-huh spicy not too spicy but pretty spicy stew with like goat meat in it and it's like red and boiling and and then they throw all these like a mountain of fresh herbs on top and then it just cooks down into the soup and then you eat it it's like hot pot uh-huh. um and it's like the most delicious thing ever is it it's so <laughs> I'm good sorry. i'm like i'm like goat goat stew little gamey oh <laughs> like, do, I'm a little do you not like lamb or anything i love lamb okay then you'll love this it's pretty much like stewed lamb it's like, okay. like almost like a, I, I, I could, I can understand it in a context where it's like similar to like an Indian lamb curry, but, but it's with more Korean forward flavors. Oh, amazing. Goat stew. And then, um, they make like a fried rice with it at the end. So it's like a bokumbap at the end. It's so freaking good. And Abe's parents have been bringing it by and like taking it to our, our apartment and we've just been eating it at home. And it's like, 
it, it, it brings me back to life. It's literally the most nourishing thing. And it's not so like do you make medicinal. the fried rice yourself. Well, then? yeah, we kind of do the fried rice thing ourselves now. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, but, and we don't do it like hot pot style. We just heat it up on the stove and eat it. But uh-huh. with all the fresh herbs, it's like it's healthy. It's restorative. It's delicious. I'm obsessed with it. So check it out. That's M-I-R-A-K. Where um, is this? K-Town. Bitch. It's like oh, right okay, next okay. to you. Okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna definitely going to go. check that out. Oh, I'm hungry. Yeah, it's lunchtime. I know. And then my second pick is Siam Sunset. Again, you know, so I'm moving in, in two weeks. So we've been trying to enjoy all the Thai town, um, you know, wonders that are near us because we're, we're in Los Feliz. So Siam Sunset, if you want like a, a, an authentic Thai breakfast, they do like Thai um, porridges of different kinds, mm. like whether it's chicken or, or pork based. And, and they also do like boat noodles. They also have this awesome stir fried intestines dish that I'm also obsessed with, but intestines is a lot. Um, and they also have these like fried, like Chinese style fried donuts that you <gasps> dip into like condensed milk and they run out really fast. And I think they're open at like 6 a.m. It doesn't, it's a very unassuming place because it's like, it's like inside a motel, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's my pick. Wow. Yeah. Okay, what's That's up? amazing. I'm, just, oh God, I'm gonna eat all the things. Okay, my two picks this week are both books. Yeah. So uh, this first book is gonna be called uh, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, and it's written by two sisters, Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski. And basically, it's like talking about burnout, but from the female perspective, Ooh. like honestly, why does burnout affect women yeah. more than men? Yeah. All right? So it's like sort of deconstructing like why we experience it differently and like it provides like a roadmap to like minimizing stress managing our emotions because we feel so emotionally frustrated right and how that's like challenged in society it's like you're being emotional if you're quote-unquote overreacting to something or overreacting to our burn burnout right so like this this <laughs> book i mean i texted it to you priscilla too i was like oh my oh, god yeah. this is making me rethink everything about everything 100 <laughs> percent because we we talk about burnout all the time so this is definitely the first book that i would recommend the second book that i want to talk about is ikigai and, and like um there are a couple times when i sort of reference the mentalities behind um ikigai which is the japanese secret to a long and health happy life wow. and the problem is is that like so many of us are unhappy because we don't know how to merge passion mission profession and vocation so at the intersect of it is ikigai or like what we call the raison d'etre the reason of being for us so um this book just like unpacks like you know the okinawans like how come they're centurions like there's no such thing as retirement for them you know and like how to live on the day-to-day you know people work out intensely but it's like oh just like low impact you know walk or like doing something routine or anything like that and um wow and also something that i learned in this book is you don't always have to have it figured out you just need to know a general direction and that's just the starting point so there's a lot that I learned from these two books. Wow, I highly recommend people to do some reading during this winter. Okay. I got to I got to I I downloaded Ikigai and I got to I got to download Burnout. So cuz you know I burn out. <laughs> <laughs> you know I struggle with that burnout. <laughs> I, we all burn out. I'm like a wheat dry wheat field. I'm easily burnt. Okay. Well, Roxy's going to pull a card for the collective and if you want to learn more about Roxy's tarot, um she's at instagram.com/sunqueentarot. Oh my God, look at this beautiful deck I got that's like all Chinese Wait, what? art. 
Oh my god, that's literally stunning. It is beautiful. I and um, those a lot would of my make clients, great tattoos. These would make great tattoos. So I've been um, I've been obsessing over this deck, and a lot of my clients have been picking this deck to do their readings. Oh, wow. So um, let's definitely pull a card out this week for the universe. Let's send our energy, y'alls. King of Swords. Okay, so the King of Swords talks about like somebody who is very grounded in terms of their mental energy. So what I'm really hearing is that like be mindful of your thoughts this week, right? So King of Swords is somebody who is very grounded in the way that they think. I keep hearing that. It's like I'm not letting myself overthink. I'm speaking the truth. Mm. You know, I I'm not allowing myself to spiral. I am in control of my emotions. I am in control of my thoughts. That's sort of um what I'm really feeling this week. The king, you know, with his sword. The sword is like his truth, his way of communicating, his his knowledge. Hmm. He sits very securely with it. Sort of like thematic with like our our um, our pod today is just like we know who we are. We are secure in our experiences. We are secure in our word, in our intentions. Mm. So really have that King of Swords energy this week. You know, if you're finding yourself overthinking something or going down a dark place and what you should have done or what you shouldn't have done, like let that go. Mm. All right. Be in the present and know that you are not your emotions and that you have every control over your thoughts. Oof. I needed that. I needed that. Thank you, Roxy, so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Season two starting off with a bang. I Woo! mean, come on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you guys have a horny week. I lovely goatees. And remember, stay, stay horny. horny. <laughs> what can I say? He's this fool when we never fall. This podcast is hosted by Aroxy and Prisca, music by Abraham Kim, artwork by Connie Yen. Please visit us at twohornygoats.com. Have thoughts or questions for us? Email us at hello at twohornygoats.com. I know too